last week, Jeremy talked about, uh, he did an amazing job. If you didn't get a chance to hear his message, I encourage you to go back to our Facebook uh, live stream. He tackled a really challenging topic that a lot of pastors and churches and Christians don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. He talked about homosexuality, and he talked about um, what our culture says about love and what the Bible says about love. And I'm not going to do it justice. He did such a great job of holding those two things in tension of, um, you know, we're, we're called to speak the truth in love. And guys, a lot of times, uh, some denominations, some churches, some Christians have fallen on the super love side, but they left truth out. And they've gone on the super truth side, but left love out. And we need both. And so there's a way to not compromise um, what true biblical love is. Um, and, and, and as true biblical truth is, uh, and yet be radically loving. And so it doesn't matter what your hang-up is. It doesn't matter what your struggle is. God loves you. It doesn't matter if you identify as a, uh, a Muslim or as um, LGBTQ+. W- wherever you find yourself, Jesus died for you, and he loves you. And so Paul, uh, a week prior to that, Jeremy had me, we're, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, and Jer- Jeremy had me speaking on the gifts of the Spirit. It was a dangerous thing to ask me to cover nine gifts of the Spirit in one little sermon. And I, I often don't have the supernatural gift of brevity. So I was, you know, it was a long sermon. But um, <clears throat> there's um, three chapters that really hit the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. 12 and 14 are really heavy on the gifts of the Spirit, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. If you're not familiar with those, fascinating topic. We'll touch on them a little bit this morning. But Paul wedged in there this chapter on love because the whole motive has to be love. You have to have the heart of love, the love of the Father wedged in there with all of these things because if you don't have love, you got nothing and you're backfiring, you're Efforts are backfiring. And so Paul ends chapter 12 by saying, now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. So I've titled my sermon, The Most Excellent Way. And he's going to go unpack what true love is. We talked about what love isn't and what the culture says about love, Hollywood's version of love. But let's take a look. We're just going to walk through it, verse by verse, chapter 13. What is love? Now Paul starts this. He goes, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So some of you have the gift of tongues. It's amazing. Paul says that the gift of tongues is to edify, to build up our inner man. A lot of times we're trying to wield a William Wallace sword with a Minnie Mouse spirit. And so you would do well to go into your prayer closet and pray in tongues, get yourself in faith. Revelation starts popping. Your spirit man's robust. You can kick demons out and all that jazz. But when you gather publicly together, it doesn't do much good if you're giving a public tongue that interrupts the service because there's got to be an interpretation because it just sounds like gibberish to the one who doesn't understand. And so Paul's all about those things that are going to build up the church, those things that are going to build up the body. And so, you know, like, you know, I showed you that meme a couple weeks ago. Uh, Someone's like, I pray in tongues. And then this cat's like, yeah, but you gossip in English. <laughs> you know, you may, you may be able to praise the Lord on Sunday morning, but if you're cutting your brother or sister down, and you're like, just 
smearing a whole denomination that you know nothing about or whatever on social media. You know, some of our behavior on Facebook really needs to be brought through this filter of this chapter. And so um, let's not be a resounding gong, but let's, there shouldn't be praise and cursing coming out of our mouth. We shouldn't join arms with the accuser of the brethren. That's one of the names for the devil. And so let's watch our tongues. He goes, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. You know, Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name prophesy and in your name drive out demons and in your name do many great miracles and he says i'll say to them away from me i never knew you you workers of lawlessness only the one who does the will of my father will will be able to enter my kingdom and so that's pretty intense like you could be a miracle worker and that's the scary thing about the gifts is that we can operate in them and have horrible character And because God loves that person, he might still want to do the miracle through you. He might still want to release the prophetic word for you, through you. But it really is, uh, creates a dissonance when we're operating in the gifts of the Spirit, but we leave the fruit of the Spirit out of the equation. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, psychics can, you know, see the future. And witch doctors can heal the sick. But uh, that doesn't make them in line with God's will. And so what is the will of the Father? I believe when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that is the will of the Father, that we be conduits of love, that we be radical lovers. Jesus said, they will know you're my followers by your love for one another. And so I love that word, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's both a command and a prophecy. If you stay abiding in the love of Jesus, if you stay connected to him in the vine, the day is coming when he is going to bring the bride of Christ to a place of maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we will love radically. We will love them with all our heart. We will love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's a problem. Some of us don't love ourselves very well. And it helps by getting the love of the Father, understanding his love for us. But Paul goes on to say, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I I don't have love, I gain nothing. You know, I I felt this. Um, Two weeks ago, I was hanging out, and our journey with this guy um, led us to some interesting folks on the streets. And um, this one guy got wind that I was in ministry as a pastor, and so uh, he was like, hey, can you um, provide a meal for my friend here? And I felt a little bit exploited, a little bit taken advantage of, like, oh, you're just kind of taking, you know, and I don't have a huge pocketbook. (laughs) But I was like, I don't want to bring, you know, disrepute on the gospel. And Jesus says in, in Luke 6 that give to everyone who asks. So I bought this hot meal with tip. It ended up being $25 for this gal that was like either on drugs or schizophrenic and just was not all there. 
but it doesn't matter. I, but I walked away going, uh, I don't know. You know, I can't do this every week, so I got to leave my wallet at home. Actually, I accidentally did that <laughs> last week. Thank the Lord I wasn't pulled over. Um, that wasn't on purpose. <laughs> and nobody asked for money that week. But anyway, um, but guys, we can give everything we own to the poor. And, the, and Paul's saying here, if it's not done from a heart of love, it, it, it gains us nothing. It might bless that person, but in terms of eternal treasure that's going to matter, that's going to sustain the refining fire that tests all of our works, uh, it, it, it will get nothing if it's about puffing ourselves up in a, you know, like, look at me, do-do-do-do, I gave to the poor. That's not why I shared that story, by the way. Um, but, yeah, so, like, uh, we can have great generosity. We can move in great revelation. We can have the tongues of men's of angels. But if we have not love, we got squat. And um, I do a podcast. I mentioned this in January that I was going to kick off a podcast this year. And I actually did it. It's a YouTube channel. I haven't stripped the audio to put it on any podcasting platforms yet, actually. But that's coming. Um, Anyway, this is the dog that we're hanging out with for a week, kicking the tires on. This is Roman. That dog is a great example of love. (laughs) That dog sees you, and he makes you feel like you're the most important creature on the planet, I tell you what. But anyway, I've been growing through the Lord's Prayer in my podcast, and we were on um, the little phrase in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And I thought it would be interesting to interview my friend Hans Ersinger Davis, who is the uh, executive director of the Lighthouse Mission. Now, um, they have a huge operation. They uh, put about 250 people in beds every night. They dole out sometimes anywhere from 300 to 900 meals a day. And they are meeting people's needs. And what's mind-blowing is that uh, some of our folks in our midst uh, uh, are serving there and helping out there. And I just commend you. That's awesome. God loves the poor. And he loves it when we care for those that can't do anything back for us. You know, like sometimes we want to have a party and it's all about getting the people. And maybe there's a little strings attached. Like if I scratch your back, you scratch mine. But you help somebody that has no resources, they can't really get you back. And so it, it's, a, it's a litmus test to see if you've got true love and operation. But they've got um, this method where it's heavily relational. They lead by relationship. One of the greatest needs of the poor in our city, the homeless, is a sense of identity and dignity. Because uh, most people, when we drive past them, we don't even make eye contact because we're like, ah, awkward, I don't want to give you money, I don't know if you're going to do good things with it, I don't have any money, and so we just drive on. I mean, we've all done it, right? We've all done it. But if you can take the time to build a bridge of relationship and show them, hey, I see you. God loves you. I'm here for you, and I want to hear your story. And you, you buy a meal, and you sit down, and you hear their story. It does wonders. And so in their recovery program, um, by helping people come into their identity as beloved children, you know, it's like that whole thing with, um, with Buzz Lightyear. When he, uh, I'm not going to talk about the movie, don't worry. <laughs> but um, Buzz Lightyear in the original Toy Story, when he realizes He's not actually like a space ranger that's saving the galaxy, but he's just a toy. (laughs) He's like, there's millions of him out there on the shelves. And he's like, oh, man, I've been lied to. I'm in, he's just totally disillusioned. 
But Woody comes along. He's like, no, check out, check out what's on the bottom of your foot. And he pulls up his foot, and it says Andy on the bottom. He's like, you're Andy's toy, and your purpose is to bring him joy. And when he got that revelation that he had a purpose, it was to bring the one who he belonged to joy. That changed everything. And, and the homeless are walking around feeling like they're just trash, they're just rubbish. But if they realize that they have Jesus written on the bottom of the foot or on the forehead, that Jesus died for them, that he loves them, and they belong to him, and that he, he's got a great place, and they can actually bring him joy. That's a powerful, I, that's a, that'll, change, that'll change everything for them. So it's not about just giving someone a home or giving them the resources. It's giving them an identity and giving them a vocation, a calling that is bigger than, um, than just living for themselves. And so they see about a 70% success rate in their recovery program. On average, most recovery programs average about 4 or 5% success rate. So they're doing something right. And so I just wanted to share that story of what they're doing. Um, and, and so if you do come across a homeless inner city, you know, a, a more powerful way to help them, rather than giving them just some money, you could give them some time. You could buy them a meal, but you could point them to the, the um, lighthouse mission where they're doing amazing things, getting them off the streets, getting them into a track that will get them into real recovery. Okay, so then here we go. Um, Paul goes in to define what love is. And he says, love is patient, love is kind. You guys know this well. It's quoted at every wedding. Did I drink all my water? No, I didn't. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, it's interesting, in Galatians 5, Paul breaks down contrast of the works of the flesh. There's about 15 things that he lists there. And then he goes into about nine of the fruit of the Spirit. And, and there, you know, love is one of the nine. But here, this is the description of love. And really, love is enough if you're like short on you know, your tweet, and all you got is one more syllable left. You just say the word love, and it incorporates joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because look, at, they're all in here. Love is patient. That's down the list. Love is patient. Okay, love is kind. That's in there. Kindness. Um, does, not post, does not boast, is not proud, um, is not rude. Okay, love is, uh, has self-control. Uh, is not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love has peace. Um, it does not uh, rejoice in evil. does not delight in evil. Okay, love is goodness. Um, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Uh, love has faithfulness. And so, um, anyway, that's just kind of fun to see that in there. But here's a little, here's a little exercise I want to challenge us with. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've maybe been operating with a wrong paradigm of who God is. Maybe you've thought he's mad at you. Maybe you've thought he's disappointed with you. Maybe you thought like you've crossed the line and there's no grace left. Maybe that's what you hear in your head. I know I've been there, done that a million times. I don't know why I get suckered for that lie every time. <laughs> but here's the thing. First John, verse, 
Chapter 4, verse 8 says, If anyone does not love, he does not know God, because God is love. So there's the definition of love is God. God is love. Okay? So let's try this exercise. God is patient with you. God is kind towards you. God, God doesn't envy you. That's not hard to believe. God's not bragging about himself. Now, I know that you may go, okay, he seems to want worship around the world. Is he an egomaniac? No, he's not. He knows that we operate properly when we are rightly aligned with our creator. If your car is supposed to run on gasoline and you put maple syrup in there, it's not going to function right. And if you put idolatry in your heart, like, yeah, maybe this will work. No, that's not life-giving. It'll cause you to end up in a place of spiritual death. But if you worship the source of life, the source of love, you become like what you worship. And so God knows that, and he wants us to get locked in to worshiping him. God's not proud. Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart. And Jesus was God. Uh, God's not self-seeking. He's seeking uh, to f- seeking to save the lost. He's searching for those ones that, whose hearts are loyal to him. The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. He's not focused on himself. He's in to others. Um, he's not easily angered. He's not. He's not like your dad growing up. If your dad flew off the handle, and sometimes I hate it that I can fly off the handle as a dad. Little kids are wired to teach us patience. They push our buttons. They know how to just go, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. Why do I have to say it six times? Can you please turn the TV off? Anyway, um, so uh, he, but God is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Wait a second. Hold the press. God isn't keeping a record of your wrongs? Look at here's the deal. If you put your faith in Jesus, you were washed in his blood, and he looks down upon you, and he sees the righteousness of God in Christ. I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again because it's fitting in the context of the gifts of the Spirit. I do an exercise where I train people how to hear God's voice, and I do a thing where we close our eyes, we put our hands out, and we put a coin in their hand, and then that person's going to be the recipient of prophetic words that are supposed to edify, comfort, and strengthen, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 3. supposed to be motivated by love, and it can't contradict God's word. Okay, so if you get it a little off, but that was your heart motive, and it didn't, didn't contradict the word, uh, I think we're in good territory. Because Paul's going to later go on and say, we see in part, we prophesy in part. We don't have to have this thing 100%. But God loves it when we're trying to love people and hear what the Spirit is saying to someone else. So we did the exercise. The first girl gets the coin. She's blessed by all the words of encouragement. And we're blessed that we can hear God. And we move on to the second round. And the second round, I kept the penny. Why am I so selfish? I should have let these people have a chance to be encouraged. Well, here was the deal. My mom had just passed away a week prior. I hadn't been able to sleep for a whole week. Because I knew she came to faith quickly after I did, 27 years ago. She, um, it was about seven years ago that she passed away. But she still had some warts and issues. She struggled to forgive my dad. I don't know what happened between her and Jesus with the forgiveness issue. But she could still be a little, a little narcissistic, a little bit manipulative. And, you know, it just, I wondered, 
Lord, is she with you? You said by their fruit you would know them. Is she with you? Is she with you for eternity? And so I needed to hear God. Now, my mom's favorite psalm was Psalm 23. My mom's maiden name was Lamb. Okay, so two weeks before she passed away, I tried to quote Psalm 23 to her. I forgot the last line. She filled in the blanks, hadn't memorized herself. So I passed the penny around. People are getting these words. They're all images coming straight out of Psalm 23. I see these green pastures. I see these still waters. I see this shepherd's staff. I see this baby lamb crying out for its mother. I hear the word comfort. I see this cup overflowing. Are you catching the picture? If you're familiar with that psalm, these are all verses straight out of that psalm. And then someone says, I see a person walking down a shadowy valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Here I was, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And I see this white sheet come out of heaven and wrap you up. And the Lord says, I don't see you through your own righteousness. I see you through the righteousness of God in Christ. Now that ministered to me when I applied it to myself. Sure, we all could hear that. But when I applied it to my mom, who wasn't perfect and I knew it, God sees her through the righteousness of Christ. That's a Bible verse, by the way. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 20 or 21. Uh, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin somehow, supernaturally on the cross, that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. And so if, if you're here this morning, you're not sure if your good is outweighed your bad, just settle the issue. I'm not going to put my trust in my own goodness. I'm going to put my trust in the righteousness, the perfect life of Jesus. And that's how God sees you. God does not delight in evil, but God rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Okay, so that's the first exercise. If you struggle with the right paradigm of God, put the name Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, Father, whatever. Put that in there and remind yourself of who this God is. Secondly, it's a mirror. Put your name in there. <laughs> See how you do. Jason is patient. I can think of many times where I don't fit that description. Jason is kind. I mean, I try to be kind, but I have some times where I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and I can be all kinds of ornery. Jason does not boast, or Jason is not envy. Gosh, I remember when I was in high school, I was in drama, and I was either going to be a starving actor or a starving artist. I decided to be a starving artist, and now I'm a pastor that still does art. And I'm still starving. Anyway, no, just kidding. Um, but I wasn't even trying to pursue a career in acting. But a friend of mine from my high school won a Tony Award for his Broadway musical. What was it called? I don't remember. Anyway, um, Chad Kimball, if you're listening, I love you, man. Anyway, when that happened, I was so envious that this guy had arrived and, you know, made something of his life, and I felt like nobody doing nothing that nobody even knew about. And I just realized I've got some issues. I got envy. I think I'm getting better. I'm getting, like, those things don't faze me. I don't want a Tony, okay? Um, God's not proud. All right, Jason's not proud. Jason's not rude. Jason's not self-seeking. Gosh, we are default like bent towards seeking our own interests. But it, you know, um, somebody once said, if you want to know how selfish you are, get married. 
So you live under this roof. You realize you need to be forgiven. You realize, hey, it's not my budget anymore. It's not my schedule anymore. It's ours. Dang it. You know, I got to work this out. Okay, well, if you want to know that, great. But you can still get away. Stay married. Know that you're selfish. Live under the same roof. But if you want to actually have to do something about it, have children. (laughs) Because at 3 in the morning, there is... I mean, there's nothing about you wanting to get out of bed. There's no selfish motive other than this kid is crying all night, and I have to console him. I don't even know how. This kid pooped his diaper. I have to change it because if I don't, he'll get a rash, and it won't be good. And kids just demand your time. They interrupt you all the time. I've just given up on the idea of having an uninterrupted thought with my wife ever again while the kids are in the house. It just doesn't happen. So, just a little, you know, that's for free if you're single or if you're married, you know, if you want to grow in being self, selfless, get married. But, you know, we still, we still wrestle with it. Anyway, so you can put yourself through this list and see how you measure up and where you fall short. Ask for help. Ask. I think that for doing the first thing, though, is the way to get the second thing. Because passion for Jesus comes from realizing Jesus' passion for you. Right? Um, you know, we... Uh, brain fart, sorry. Hi. Um, when you realize that God delights in you, you can actually delight in the Lord. And so you got to get a revelation of the Father's love for you, of Jesus' love for you. How much does he love you? This much. He went to the cross. You were worth it. He paid it all for you. He treasures you. And so you got to just spend some time camping out on the love God has for you. And then you can become more and more like him as you behold him. You know, the Moravians were known as these missionaries who were, um, their theology was beholding the lamb. That the lamb that was slain would, beho- would uh, receive the due reward of his suffering. And these guys heard about some slaves on a slave island that you couldn't share the gospel with unless you were a slave. And so guess what they did? They sold themselves into slavery so that they could win some people to Jesus. And as their ship sailed off, they said goodbye to their family and friends and said, may the lamb who was slain receive the due reward of his suffering. They were looking lamb-like because their theology was beholding this lamb, meditating on his wounds, what he had done for them, and they became like him. Um, Wait. Okay, here's another litmus test. Some of you like social media. Is this Facebook post patient? Is this Facebook post kind? Is this Facebook post rude? Is this, uh, you know, is this dishonor others? You get it. You go down the list. And I am just disgusted, honestly, guys, by what some of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are posting online. Now, here's the thing. It's good to be, you know, an advocate for truth. And I've wrestled with this. You know, I stayed out of the controversial topics for years and years. Then I came out of the closet and shared some thoughts. Got totally misunderstood, attacked 400 comments later. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not worth it. No one's getting saved or changing their mind in the thread of a Facebook post. You know what I'm saying? (coughs) But who knows? Maybe that one that was touched, they never, I'll never know. But the challenge is if they come at you with accusation and they say mean-spirited things like, 
does anybody know a Christian counselor in Jason's area? He needs help. You know, I'm getting stuff like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, dude. So um, the challenge is, is to not respond in kind, but to respond with kindness. And um, I, I don't know. I'd have to go back, but I think I tried to stay in that vein. I might have dipped into that uh, a little bit. So sometimes it's like, oh, this one's going to smart. Yeah, maybe just don't post it. You know, it's not about you can, you can win an intellectual battle but lose the person, and that's more important. But here's, here's the thing in Paul's context. Is this prophetic word patient? Is this prophetic word kind? Is this self-seeking? Some people, for them, it's about getting the mic and being seen as the prophetic person. Or, you know, showing how, how well they hear from God. It's not about any of that. Um, and, man, I, I was blown away. The first time I ever got a prophetic word, a man comes up to me. He quotes my journal verbatim. He says, I believe this is what God would say to you. But before he quotes my journal, he goes, I'm, he goes in first person. I thought that was bold. He goes, I'm so, so pleased with you. So, so very pleased with your passion and your zeal for me. So, so very pleased. He just lingered on that thought for a long time. And I thought, surely God would say, I saw what you did last night. I saw what you thought this morning. You're disqualified. You know, like that's what I thought God would say. But this guy was like just this tender father that was proud of me. And then he goes, and I will let you weep and you will weep for the lost. That was what I wrote in my journal. I was like, dude, you've been rummaging through my backpack? Like this is cray cray. But anyway, so when we have the heart of the father, that's got to be the motive. And here's the thing. It can seem like contradictory, right? God comes up to Gideon and goes, mighty man of valor. He comes to him in an angel. Gideon's hiding in a wine press, freaked out. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm the least of my family and we're the least tribe. Like, ah. And he's like, go in the strength of yours. You know, like God saw who Gideon was supposed to be. God saw his potential. God saw the best version of Gideon, and he called it forth. When Jesus says, I'm going to rename you, uh, Simon. I'm going to call you Peter. That means the rock. Peter would deny Jesus three times on his most critical time of need. And yet, God calls him the rock, and he, and he saw who he would become. God knows the person you're ministering to. He's seen them what they look like four billion years from now. And so it's, it's easy to call forth the dirt in somebody. We can all do that. Oh, yeah, you pick your nose, and you interrupt a little too much, and your cackle, oh, my gosh, get rid of the cackle. Whatever, we can all find fault with each other. But operating in a gift of the Spirit is not about what you see in that person. It's asking for a revelation of the Father's heart. And remember, the Father is patient. The Father's kind. He doesn't envy. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. And so when we get in line with the heart of the Father, and we speak words of life, we call them forth into their true identity. And so it's easy to find dirt, but find the gold and pull it out of somebody. Proverbs 25, 2 says, um, maybe, verse 1, I don't know. Um, it, it, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. And so go on a treasure hunt and say, God, I'm struggling with this person, but what's something you love about them? Let me communicate that and speak words of life into them. So that's the heart of the gifts of the Spirit. Again, on Sunday morning, we don't have time to fully release you into all of it, but um, just giving you some things to wet your whistle. Uh, I'm just going to briefly go through this. Paul goes on to say, where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. 
Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. So he's saying these gifts are really amazing, but guys, they're not the most amazing thing. Faith, hope, and love is all that's going to endure when everything that can be shaken is shaken. And the day is coming when we will know everything. We won't need to prophesy to strengthen someone in their faith. We're going to like know the heart of the Father. We're going to know his thoughts. He's going to know ours. And gift of tongues is not going to be a sign anymore. We're all going to be speaking the language of love or heaven. I don't know. But anyway, Paul says, I, I, I know in part and I prophesy in part. So it gives me a clue that you don't have to have it all perfectly aligned and perfect. Sean Bowles, I've shared uh, about him before. He really hears from God in amazing ways. He started trying to bring this outside of the walls of the church. He's in a coffee shop. He sees a guy. He goes up to him. He says, hey, does the name Steve mean anything to you? And the guy's like, no. And he's like, dang it, I missed it. And he's walking away. Okay, thanks. And like, he's kind of like just embarrassed. And uh, the guy goes, hey, wait, why did you ask? And he's like tempted to go like, well, I'm a hearty Krishna, just to make them look bad and not Christians, you know, <laughs> but he didn't go there. He goes, uh, so I'm a Christian, and I believe I can hear from God, and I'm trying to step out in faith, and I don't always get it right, but I tried. He's like, you know what? I've always wanted to meet somebody who claims or believes that they can hear from God. Tell me about how that works. So they have a 45-minute conversation. This guy's a high-level Hollywood executive producer, gives his life to Jesus, all based on a wrong word of knowledge. Come on. If you have the motive of love, it doesn't matter about the information. It matters about the impartation of the Father's heart. When completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Some theologians have tried to say that's when the Bible was completed. No, most theologians say that's when Jesus comes back. Things are not perfect. Things are not complete yet. But when he does, these things will be a thing of the past. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, Jesus does say the kingdom of God belongs to the little children, and he calls us to have childlike faith. There's a difference between childlike faith and childishness. <laughs> Parents in the room know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, when my, my kids beat on each other and don't listen and don't care about waking mom up. And I said, don't go into the bedroom. It's going to wake mom up. She needs her beauty sleep. And they go, anyway, they're not thinking selflessly. They're just like, I want mom. I want to talk to her. I don't care if she's asleep, you know? But when we come into maturity, we start to have a heart for others. We start to consider others. And that's the heart of the gifts of the Spirit, is that we would um, not just, you know, it's cool to hear God tell you what job to take, what person to marry, and we should bring him into our personal choices. But what if we got a heart to say, God, is there anybody in the room you want to minister to? Is there anybody in Bellingham you want me to go find? We do these treasure hunts I told you about, and we did one at Western's campus a few years back, and I had written down fifth floor of the Viking Union, and I had written down dangly earrings. So I figured it was going to be a, a gal, and I, uh, I, we had five minutes left before we are going to get in the cars and go. I go to the fifth floor of the Viking Union, very small little area, um, and I see this girl with dangly earrings. I'm like, maybe that's her. And I say, hey, I've written down some things that maybe clues on this treasure map. Maybe you're the treasure. Uh, let's see if you fit in any of these other descriptors. Are you stressing out about your homework right now? Now, anybody on a college campus says I'm a huge faith builder because, you know, they're all probably stressed about homework. But she was like, oh, yeah, I'm really stressed out. I missed a whole week of school last week. I'm wondering if I can catch up. I go, why did you miss a whole week of school last week? She goes, um, my father passed away, and I had to do the funeral and deal with all that. 
And I had written down revelation of the Father's heart for a prayer request. And so I, was, I showed it to her on the paper. She started to weep, started to pray for her. I don't know anything about her faith or where she's at with the Lord. But man, that's a revelation of the Father's love. And that's the cool thing I love about the gifts of the Spirit is that it brings this theoretical, generic, oh, God loves you. I've heard that verse a hundred times too. God knows your address. God sees where you are. He can get me to you in a five-minute window in the right amount of time to tell you the right thing that you need to hear. Give me the clues that I need to know to find you, right? And so that's what I love, and I want to see us step into that more. And we'll create workshops where you can learn more and train more and, and, you know, experiment on each other. Okay. Paul says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we'll we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I'm fully known. I mean, that's a scary looking, you know, idolatrous mirror. But here's the reason I put it up. It's an ancient mirror. Ancient mirrors are not like our mirrors. We look in a mirror like, dang, I got that little pizza thing in there, whatever. This is what an ancient mirror looked like. It was not that high tech. You could barely kind of make out a fuzzy image of yourself. And that's what Paul's saying is, guys, we have no idea. We, we just get whispers of his love, and we're trying to prophesy in line with what we know, but he's going to make it all fully clear to us in that day. And then he goes, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In Hebrews 12, God says, I'm going to shake everything that can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Before this whole thing is said and done, God is going to allow some crazy shakings. We've already experienced them over the last few years. And the thing about shakings is that, you know, things shake off of us, and God wants us to plumb line ourselves in what truly matters. And the things done in, inspired by faith, Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. And we know that um, the Bible, the whole Bible was written, according to Romans 15, that we might have hope. <clears throat> and so there are people out there taking their lives because they don't have hope, but you do. And you might bolster their hope when you speak the word of God over them. And it could just be, you know, you didn't hear it straight from the Holy Spirit. You spoke the word of God. But man, when you tune in, what does the Lord want to say to this person? And it happens to be the right verse, the life verse, the thing that really speaks to them in that moment. Um, There's a book by Dutch Sheets called uh, Incredible Power of Hope or something like that. He tells this story of this woman who woke up in 1965 in the middle of the night got her grandkids out and said, kids, I've received a message from God. People need his word. So they started writing Bible verses down, sticking them in Coke bottles, and throwing them out onto the beach in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Okay? About 200 bottles went out. You know, not the most environmentally friendly, but hey, whatever. So then um, she would receive all these letters saying, thank you for the message. That really encouraged me. The last letter came after she had passed away, in 1974, the year I was born, you can do the math. <coughs> and this woman uh, writes a letter, says, Dear Mrs. Gauss, uh, I am writing to you from a farm in Ohio. I have 11 kids. My husband passed away. The farm is foreclosing. We have one loaf of bread in the shelves. And I went down to the river to take my life. 
And I was going to drown myself. I figured it wouldn't take long because it's frozen over. And then just as I was getting ready to do that, this Coke bottle pops up. She grabs the bottle. She finds three verses about hope. And she's like, I went out and got my Bible, read these verses. We're doing okay. Uh, thank you so much for this message. How did a Coke bottle make a nine-year journey from Cocoa Beach, Florida to a river, not just any river, but the right river at the right time in the right place in Ohio? God's into giving people hope. And he can give you a prophetic word that takes nine years to deliver, or you can do it right in church this morning if you have ears to hear what he's saying. But people need to know the hope we have. And I just want to close with this other definition of love. 1 John 3.16. You know, John 3.16 is the famous one that Billy Graham made famous. 1 John 3.16 is this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Uh, if my rendition, I'm a cartoonist, so I drew that. Uh, if my rendition of Jesus, he's probably more marred up and bloodied than that. And uh, I've never seen him face to face. So, you know, it's my best guess. Um, but guys, that's what love looks like, is laying down our lives for each other. And in light of the most recent thing that has Christians just mind blown, or not all Christians, but um, something happened a week or so ago. What happened? Roe versus Wade was overturned. And um, I never thought I'd see the day. I've always known a, a Roe v. Wade world where it's legal to abort babies. And, um, but there's a group of people that have been praying. There's this guy named Lou Engel who got the hairball idea, let's end abortion. And started rallying people to stadiums and gave out these little life bands that said, Jesus, I plead your blood over my sins and the sins of my nation. God, end abortion and send revival to America. Jesus, I plead your blood over my sins and the sins of my nation. God, end abortion and send revival to America. Now, you may ask, why these two topics? Why is abortion have anything to do with revival? But we read in many passages how the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. Um, there was another story where uh, th there was uh, some bloodshed of the Gibeonites, and, and that injustice uh, kept the Israelites from receiving the blessing. And so um, God loves life, and he cares about these little ones in the womb. I believe they go straight to heaven, so it's not that issue. But um, with, with bloodshed all over our land, uh, there's, there's a curse on our land. We can't experience the full out, outpouring of the Holy Spirit unless we turn from our wicked ways and seek his face. And so I never thought this thing would be ended, but after like 50 years of this thing being in place and about 23 years of intense prayer for this thing that I know of, I know there's people that have been praying for the whole 50 years, this thing got overturned. Now, it doesn't mean abortion's gonna stop tomorrow. Uh, it's still legal in most states. It may get overturned in certain states. It's a battle now at the state level. And I've got family members and friends on Facebook that believe completely opposite of how I do about all this. And I'm not trying to go there. I mean, I've gone there. But 
But here's my challenge to us. This is my conviction. I've known this. This is what led us to adopt our first child. We, uh, you know, were having difficulty for 10 years getting preggers. And I uh, thought we could go the, what, the med- medical route and spend all that money on those, maybe get triplets or octuplets, I don't know. We didn't want to run that risk and thought our money would be better spent going for adoption because for us it was not just family expansion plan, it was a justice issue because we re- were part of a community that was praying for the ending of abortion. And if our prayers were ever answered, we need to be ready to be the reason or the, the hope, I mean, the solution for somebody going through an unwanted pregnancy. I don't know if this is still the number, but about 10 years ago, I heard this stat, it blew my mind. 4,000 abortions every day in America. 4,000. Now, all those pregnancies are still classified unwanted. Now, they could all get money from every big corporation that wants to pay you to go kill your baby in another state, but um, they're still unwanted. And so the church really has to rise up in this moment to open our hearts and open our homes to these unwanted babies. And that's a heavy, heavy. You can't just flippantly decide to do that. You really got to seek the Lord. And there's ways you can pray for it. There's ways you can give money towards it. There's ways you can support adoptive families. Um, there's things that we can do. You can help alleviate the foster care system too. Um, but I just want to put this out there. If, if you are rejoicing because innocent bloodshed isn't happening, ask the Lord to show you how you can help be a part of the solution because we're going to have to see a huge adoption movement ro- raised up. And what I love about like walking pregnancy clinic, places like that, they're not just into like you and your baby and, and we don't care about the mom. They, they go on afterwards with the moms and help them with the, the needs that they have. There's a lot of accusation and lies out there about, oh, Christians don't care about babies. They only care about babies. They don't care about the rest of life. And it's just not true. And maybe some people exemplify that. But God's calling us to be those people who can just silence the accuser because we're living such radically loving lives that they go, wow, there is a God. He's real. So I just wanted to land with that. I know that's a heavy. But um, I'm going to pray uh, for yes, and then we'll be done. Is Nick still here? I've gone too long. I think we'll just we'll wrap it up. How did I do that? I wasn't going to go long today. I'm going to have the miracle of brevity. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you so, your, Father, you so loved us that you gave your only son, that whoever puts their trust in you might not perish, but have eternal life. And I thank you, Lord, that you showed us what love looks like on the cross. And you show us in this passage that you are kind and you are patient and you are not easily angered and you keep no record of wrongs. You don't dishonor us. You're not rude. You protect, you trust, you persevere. You never fail. And for the one in this room or the many whoever are listening over the live stream that have had a wrong paradigm of who you are, I pray that this exercise of putting the name of Jesus in this little passage and meditating on that reality would transform a heart to really believe this, not just intellectually, but to experience your supernatural love of mercy and kindness and patience. And Lord, for the ones here this morning that are feeling indicted because we can't put our names in that paragraph, 
and get very far without feeling like we fall far short. I pray, Lord, that you would, as we meditate upon your love, make us more and more like you. Give us a heart to see the one in the room or on the streets that need a fresh touch, a a, a fresh understanding that they are treasured, that you love them, that there's hope in Jesus. Give us enough love to get out of our comfort zones and to love well the city of Bellingham, those in this room, and those on the streets. And Lord, I just pray that you would increase the gifts of your spirit in our midst so that we might expedite this process of people believing that you are this way, that you are this loving, you are this kind. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys. Uh, Nick was right. I had this whole song I was going to play you, but it's a nine-minute song. And I thought, oh, surely I'll be brief. But uh, no, no. Um, I didn't have that much faith. <laughs> anyway, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this uh, benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bless you guys. Have an awesome week. Thanks for coming.